Hello, this is Dan Chagru, and welcome to the More Art Than Science podcast, where I explore the relationship between music and commerce by talking to musicians, mostly guitarists, about how they got their start and how they make ends meet. Fareed Haq, spelled H-A-Q-U-E but pronounced Haq, is a virtuoso of classical, jazz, and electric guitar. He's been gigging since he was 13 years old and was given a scholarship to study jazz guitar at North Texas State University, but left after a year to study classical guitar at Northwestern. We get into the whys and hows of that in the podcast, or the interview. Over the years, he's recorded many discs, albums, streams, and toured with many famous musicians, including uh, recording two discs on Sting's Pangea label, and he even toured with Sting in the early 90s. Throughout the aughts, he played and recorded and toured with the jam band Garage Mahal. Garage Mahal is, according to my informal survey of two friends, officially the best jam band name in the world. Though Farid is mostly based out of Chicago these days, I met him at the University of Rhode Island Guitar Fest, organized by Adam Levin in April 2018. Farid was generous enough to give me not only his time for this interview, but also to give me a masterclass as I struggled through Recuerdos de la Alhambra. My tremolo was and is embarrassingly slow. One of the things that he said to me was, quote, why do you think flamenco guitarists are so good at tremolo? Because they grew up doing rasqueado. That makes intuitive sense to me. And I've since tried to pick up some basic rasqueado progressions, but I've, I haven't quite found one that I like. I suppose I need to find a flamenco teacher to give me a few lessons. Farid's son, by the one, by the way, Farid's son, who is an early teen or perhaps preteen, was with Farid for the entire festival. His son was patient with Farid. He seemed to understand what it meant to have a dad making a living in music. Or maybe I was just assuming too much. At any rate, Farid was pragmatic. He actually swapped out the bridge of his guitar while he gave me my lesson, which I found impressive, if a bit distracting. He played a couple of days later with Goran Ivanovich, whom I'll have on the podcast in a few weeks. They were the only two players all week who used amplifiers, and I loved them for that. In my uh, not-so-humble opinion, too many classical players join this sort of cult of tone that prohibits them from being heard in certain, in certain halls and in certain situations. Fareed's playing was excellent. He was fast, loud, and absolutely unique. His demeanor was incredibly relaxed. He looked much more at ease with a guitar in his hands than he did without. And he definitely had a very good groove and vibe going with Goran. My conversation with Fareed focused on how he got his start, some of the business dealings he had, and what advice he has for aspiring, aspiring guitarists starting out today. Me too. Beautiful. <laughs> All right. So we are here at the URI, University of Rhode Island Guitar Festival. I'm here with Fareed Haq. Welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, so I'd love to hear a little bit about the intersection of music and commerce in, mm. in your life, um, how you made things work um, from young age all the way up until now. Yeah. Um, and maybe let's just start with, you know, at what age did you start playing guitar? Um, well, I started playing music pretty early on, um, traditional kind of uh, piano lessons when I was eight, mm -hmm. um, and then moving on to uh, playing upright bass in the school orchestra because they needed a bass player. Which, where were about, you at this point? When this you were is in, a, in the Midwest, in Glen Allen, outside of Chicago. Okay. And um, 
uh, and then about 11, my mother, uh, my mother's from Chile, mm -hmm. and the guitar is very big in South American culture. Yeah. We had a lot of music around the house. Ravi Shankar records, flamenco records. Uh, Jose Regulatore was the classical guitarist who we had around the house, and I just mm -hmm. loved, still do, love his music, his sound. Um, and so we had a lot of guitar around, and so my mom suggested I play the guitar. Mm -hmm. And of course, at that time, you know, rock and roll was big, so I was starting to play in rock bands. And right by the time I was uh, 11 or 12, I was, I was starting to play, and by the time I was 13 or 14, I was, you know, getting some gigs. And, um, you know, little stuff, but the phone was ringing. Yeah. And, um, and then by the time I was 16, I was heading into the city to go to jam sessions. Okay. As soon as I got my license, I was driving into the city to go to some of the south side of Chicago jam sessions. This is happening fast, okay. Yeah. It, 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 backing up just for a second, so you're into guitar at age 11. At eight, you're taking piano lessons. At yeah. that time, were you resistant as an eight-year-old? You're like, oh, this is boring, I want to go outside and play, or were you... I, I don't think I was that independently minded at that point. You know, I'm an only child. My parents are, you know, my father's from Pakistan, my father's from Chile, so mm -hmm. they have a... From both sides, a pretty, uh, you know, um, immigrant work ethic, work okay. hard. And so I was working hard, okay. you know, at piano lessons. Um, in fact, I think the hardest thing for me was quitting my piano lessons when I was about 13. Because I loved playing the piano and I was considered one of my, my teacher's best students and he really wanted me to continue. But I just couldn't bring myself to practice as much as I thought I needed to. Because you were also playing, playing guitar. Because I was playing okay. guitar so yeah. much. How much were you practicing piano as an eight-year-old, roughly? Um, Minutes per day. I think it was more of the two hours just before the lesson <laughs> kind of thing, okay. frantic with tears and, uh -huh. and screaming. Okay, so I don't feel bad about my eight-year-old. <laughs> Good, okay, because that's, yeah, that's how it is in our house, too. Um. <laughs> but I, I also don't regret those tears. Those, those were well-earned and well-spent. Yeah. Yeah. So I've heard many other musicians tell me they, they cried when they were eight, but they don't regret it at all. So right, absolutely. really great to hear. Okay, so, so, it's, but, so there's some parental push happening there. If you're crying, obviously you're not just playing it naturally. Right. They're telling you right. to do it, and you're, you feel some responsibility. I think it was less it. they were telling me to do it as much as I wanted to do it, but I was a procrastinator. Okay. And so I knew that I couldn't get out of the lesson. Mm. And so two hours beforehand, I'm frantically trying to get this piece together that I needed to get together. So, did, so the, the teacher maybe had instilled a little bit of fear in you? It, like, you know, if you don't get it right, you would, not so much, I mean, not corporal punishment, but you would feel as if you had disappointed him or her. And, there was that, yeah. I think. And I think also my parents were like, well, the lesson's paid for and you're going to the lesson. Yeah, okay. So you're going to make an ass out of yourself one way or the you other. You didn't want the embarrassment, yeah. Right, Okay. Right. Okay, cool. All right, so, so eight, 11, you're listening to all kinds of music in the house, um, flamenco, classical guitar, yeah. um, and then 13 or 14, you pick up the guitar electric. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you're playing. No, mostly acoustic first. Mostly acoustic, but um, playing rock songs. Uh, yes, yeah, pretty quickly on playing rock songs. And uh, and how did the first call to play a gig? I mean, you're, this oh, yeah. sounds like a dream come true. I like can't that. remember, and it wasn't like that. It okay. was. It was more of playing, uh, being invited to play in the in the university. Uh, not the university, the high school jazz ensemble, and then the high school jazz quintet, okay. which was called the Cool Heat Jazz Quintet. The Cool Heat, all right. Yeah, <clears throat> and then we would play a lot of uh, local events, and as that progressed, 
eventually he's like, well, there's this other show, you know, and it, you know, pays, you know, $25 and a sandwich, you know, or something, you know, and, um, <laughs> I'm gonna, that might be the name of the podcast, 25 <laughs> bucks and a sandwich. <laughs> sandwich, 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 yeah, S-A-M-M-I-C-H, right? Oh, I see. And a sandwich. Chicago? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, sandwich. And, and so that's, I think, where you have a gigging mentality because you have to go to the event, set up your gear, play the show, you know. Um, and then there was the IMEA events, you know, the Illinois Music uh, Educators Association. Okay. And I, I think I was in the All-State Orchestra playing bass at the same time in the All-State um, choir playing jazz guitar, so jazz you, choir. So, so the, you're a teenager at this point, and you have a sense that you have a, a, a bit of a gift do, do, do you, are you aware that like oh I'm I'm pretty damn good at this? Um, I don't think I was that aware to, to know that I was good or bad. I just knew that opportunities were opening, and I was. I mean, I, I'll give you a good example of of the kind of kid I was. Mm -hmm. I was so psyched to be doing this that it didn't cross my mind as to whether I was good or bad. Okay. You're just like someone's calling. They're saying, "I can. I'm going to do it." Right. Yeah. You know. And uh, when I was a freshman, I got uh, so I never thought about being a musician uh, professionally. And then my band director set up an audition with uh, Rich Madison from North Texas State University. This is what, what year? Did this, this is in '80. I'm sorry. Uh, what year of school? Of uh, so my senior year. In, okay. In, so you're 18, and he's got this yeah, opportunity 17, to, to play in, in college, yeah, basically. Right. 17. And so we're at a jazz fest, and, and I'm, you know, and, and, and he sets up this meeting. He didn't say audition, and I didn't oh, really think so of it. So you as didn't much. have the pressure. Yeah, I didn't even know oh. that that was even an idea. Um, and then I played some tunes with with Rich. He played piano. I played guitar. We played a couple standards. That was great, you know. And then uh, didn't hear anything from him. But they asked me to send them a demo tape. So I spent hours making a demo tape, just back in the days of cassettes, yeah. to send them. Did you know what it was for? I mean, It was for uh, getting a scholarship. Right. I mean, well, that's what I assumed. Right, right, right. But did you know that money was riding on this? I, I did. Okay. I did. But I wasn't really that invested in the idea of going to college for music okay. at the time. I was more like, well, if I get it, that'd be nice. But if not, I've got 30 students at the local music store. Oh, you're already I've got gigs yeah, okay. out and about. I can take a year, see how this music thing goes, and then maybe I'll go to university for whatever. Yeah, okay. And, uh, and then the day before classes started, I got the uh, the call that I had received the jazz guitar scholarship, and could I be at you know the university? It was like it was maybe Saturday, and they said classes start Monday. Can you be here Monday? <laughs> you know, it took them so long, right? Right. Apparently, they lost the tape. Oh. You physically lost, just okay. like it's in my desk, so I can't find it. It's underneath the banana peels, you know. And uh, so my parents and I said, we, well, I guess we can get in the car. We start driving now. We'll be there by Monday, right? So as a, as a child of immigrant parents, I mean, they're, I'm guessing that they are not necessarily thinking that mu a mus musical degree is the most practical of degrees, or, or were they supportive? My mother was real supportive. My dad was supportive, but not initially as a career, and then when I started getting work, kind of like, well, he's getting paid, he's okay. getting paid, you know, yeah. he's getting this full ride, so it's university. Okay. So I got down there, and this is where it gets funny, because, and I remember this, but from my side, I, re I heard the story later from their side, <laughs> you know, which is I went to Dan Hurley, 
it was the, the, the head of the uh, jazz improv. Okay. And I said, you know, I don't really want to take jazz theory <laughs> because I want to go right into improv class because I kind of know my jazz theory pretty well. And I, this is no arrogance here. This is just complete enthusiasm. Like, yeah. So I was thinking, maybe you could give me the book. I could do all the homework over Christmas break and take the exam when I get back after Christmas holiday and then come right into improv class. And he just started busting out laughing. And I didn't understand why he was laughing yeah. at all. Years later, I was like, if someone showed up in my office and said, hey, can I do an entire semester's worth of work in a week and a half and then come back and do the test and get an A+, would that be okay? I would, have bust, I would bust out laughing too. Right, you right. Know? Of course, I did get the book and I did go home and I did do all the work and I did get an A plus in jazz theory and I did move on. Nice. Um, and I don't say that as a brag as much yeah. as to say that, that I was that passionately committed to figuring this out. Mm -hmm. That the social discomfort didn't even register on my radar. There, there, you know, and and, and I, it, it was very clearly my objective as, as a young musician to um, to get my work done, you know, and um, be uh, a self starter to figure things out once mm -hmm. and get them done. I wanted to learn music theory once. I wanted to learn right hand technique on classical guitar one time. Yep. So I studied John Williams because he had the most perfect right hand technique. Consciously, I made that decision, and then I, you know, and I was able to 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 get a, a, a pretty high level of proficiency pretty quickly. Because I was relatively organized yeah. about that. Okay, so so you're, you've got yourself a scholarship. You're getting your uh, bachelor's degree without going into debt. This is a full ride for four years. Okay, and uh, did you pursue a graduate degree after that? I did not. Okay. I didn't. So straight into gigging. Straight that? right into gigging, and I didn't really see the point of the master's degree um, because not after soon after graduating, I got a um, a call from Northern Illinois University to teach. Oh wow. So at that point, it was uh, 1986. I was touring regularly with Paquita de Rivera. Um, I was known as someone who played classical and jazz. Mm -hmm. And being of Hispanic, Asian origins, there were a lot of uh, financial perks to an institution to hire someone like me who was a Latin minority mm -hmm. who plays classical and jazz guitar. Uh -huh. In retrospect, I see kind of the advantage of like, oh, this guy, you know, <laughs> look at the bang for the buck, you know. <laughs> Okay. Twice the guitar teacher and a third of the price. You know, <laughs> it's kind of what it was. <laughs> and then fulfilling all of these quotas. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. No. So, um, and and I, they were very uh, flexible with me, and I was able to continue touring. So oh, wow. for the entire thirty years, I've basically been there two to three days a week, Monday through Wednesday. So you're still teaching there now. I'll be retiring in May. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And um, and you know, so a teaching. Position right out of bachelor's, yeah. uh, and you're touring. You're yeah. touring um, with Paquita de Rivera, pardon mm -hmm. the pronunciation. Um, and and then, so at what point does um, Garage Mahal come into the picture? So, yeah, it's a little bit later. So, uh, I was touring with, with Paquito, with Bob James. Okay. And we went to Europe a number of times, we went to Asia a number of times. Um, and then I was, uh, Sting started. Uh, you know, paying attention to what I was doing a little bit, and signed me to his label. And then, um, 
You played with Sting on, on a few, yeah, on a few recordings, on yeah, a few recordings, okay. and a few live of shows. his or of, of, of yours, of his, of his, okay. And then he um, sort of co, you know, executive produced my records, cool, uh, through his label. Um, How did he first notice you? Do you know? He came to hear Paquito, ah, because they were going to sign Paquito to his new label, Pangea, and he heard me and asked me to again send him a tape of what I was doing. And it was a good moment because I kind of had to make some decisions about who I was mm. as an artist as opposed to as a, uh, a gun-for-hire guitar player. Because mm. I was doing jingles in Chicago. I was doing electric, acoustic, classical, teaching all these different styles of Hispanic. So I have that Hispanic thing going, bossa nova, Afro-Cuban guitar, yeah. samba guitar. So there was a lot of different sides to what I did. And, I, and when, when Sting said, hey, and with Paquito, I was doing all this. I played jazz guitar, rock fusion guitar, and Spanish guitar. It, it, but but it, it, in a support role for Paquito? Or? In a support role. Okay, yeah. so I, I was featured a lot. I mean, we did some yeah. duos together and things. But obviously, yeah, it was his show. And so when Sting said, hey, what do you what do? You do? You know, then it was like, well, I write all this music that has a nylon string guitar up front with a rhythm section. So that's the, the, the demo tape I submitted to him. Mm -hmm. And they signed me on the strength of that. But, you know, I, I think as much as one might think of that as an artistic decision, it was also a business decision. Because mm -hmm. there really wasn't anybody who was an improviser and who played classical guitar mm -hmm. in America at that time. You mean your, so whose business decision? Your business decision to sign with Sting as opposed to his decision. And, to and, and my business time. decision to sort of frame who I am uh, uh, uh. as... Oh, I see. A nylon string guitarist. In fact, in a way, it worked to my disadvantage because Sting was so wrapped up in the idea that I played nylon string guitar that it never occurred to him until years later that I played electric guitar. So when he was looking for guitarists for his band, he didn't hire me because mm. he just said, well, he only plays nylon string, <laughs> even though I was playing electric all the time. Yeah, yeah. But, but the niche thing you're saying is that you, you chose the, the nylon string with um, rhythm accompaniment because that was an area that hadn't been tapped yet. In other words, you could yeah. be unique in that genre. Right, right. Okay. it was something that I brought to the table right. that, was, that was relatively unique. It's interesting, yeah, because from uh, just talking to Goran yesterday, uh, one of the things about um, uh, Eastern Bloc that I think that ended up working to their disadvantage and when Nunsuch came to listen to them is that, you know, here they are with nylon string guitar and I think it was stand-up bass, drums, and sax. Uh, and sax, yeah. And Nunsuch says, well... That niche doesn't exist, so we don't know what to do with you. Right. Right. <laughs> right. You might think a label would be a little bit more forward-thinking and say, oh, this is completely new. Maybe we can make something of it, right. which is right. essentially what you did. I think that's, that's the, the, the cycles of artistic entrepreneurship in any, whether it's literature, whether it's theater, whether it's movies, whether it's music, dance, again and again and again. It's like, this is something new. What do we do with this? Mm -hmm. And there's always been two reactions. One has been, well, here comes Hamilton. This is something new. What do we do with it? And it explodes, and it's huge. You know, Santana comes along. This is something new. What do we do with it? It's huge. George Winston comes along playing these little simple things on the piano. This is new. What do we do with it? Boom! It's huge. You mm -hmm. know, and and you know, and then when you have those moments in in, in the art, artistic world, it seems like then you have a slew of people trying to recreate that bubble. Yeah. And it never quite works the same way. Right, right. But but also you need somebody needs to take that leap of faith on the new thing, as they did with Santana Hamilton, uh, and right. so they didn't with uh, 
with these from Block, but but they or Sting did anyway um, with your yeah. with your niche. Yeah. Um, okay, so so you're so you've got a label now that's promoting you with with Sting. Um, you're touring all the time. You, you're teaching, so you have several different sources of income. You're making money right. off of gigging. Right. You're making money off of recorded. At, at these in those days, you're still selling discs. Right. 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 And then, yeah, go ahead. So I think the, the big transition for me was I, I got hired by Joe Zavinal to tour with him. And, and his, his aesthetic was a jazz musician who had a classical training, who was embracing the world. And if you think about all the things that I'm doing, here's a, a jazz musician with classical training who comes from a world music background. And I would say that Joe, more than anybody else, uh, focus my attention on the value and the worth of the folk music traditions around the world, okay. especially those that I was a part of, mm -hmm. including the jazz tradition in Chicago, which is not the same as the jazz tradition in San Francisco mm -hmm. or the lack of jazz tradition in San Francisco, if one might go that far. Um, you know, there's a, there's a real down-home blues world in Chicago that I didn't even know I had uh, become a part of, I had, I had absorbed mm. until years later, you know. And playing with Joe, he really encouraged me in some of the most challenging and painful personal ways <laughs> to embrace those roots. You know, Joe was a real pain in the ass to work for. But so what, what most was, of the time he what, was right. Yeah, what was, the, what was the challenging thing that he put you through? What's an example? Alcoholism was a good one. He, he put was, you through alcoholism? He was just... Oh. You know, had all kinds of issues with with with, oh. with that, and then we all had to embrace it because it was like, how could you get to the gig? You know, I would be drinking, you know, coffee cup sized glasses of vodka on stage just to get through the, the through the night. Man, it was intense, and um, yeah, not the pretty side of the of the, the touring world, and um, you know, and every night he would choose someone to 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 to, to tear down. And, and uh, some nights it was my turn, some nights it was a percussionist, some nights it was a bass player. Yeah. You got a thick skin after a while because you realized that one night he was going to say, you know, why the blank are you blanking up my music, uh -huh. playing that blanking stuff that you're blanking, <laughs> and he's screaming at you, and then you listen to the show, you know, the next night of the, of, of the previous night that he had just cussed you out for, and then he comes and he says, oh my God, why can't you play like that every night? That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Realize, realize oh, there's some dysfunction here. Yeah, because it's the same. You're playing the same both nights. No, that was the tape of the show that he had cussed me out for. Oh. <laughs> okay, so literally the same. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so you. literally yeah. exactly the same. And so, but to be fair to, to Joe, I mean, he, he was quite the visionary and uh, a musical genius. I mean, I have stories about you know, playing in, in Rio de Janeiro, and, and, and he said, hey, you know that Villa Lobos crap you're always playing? <laughs> Because I was preparing the concerto for a performance back in, in the States. And he says, you know, you know, going the key. Yeah. Right? Right. And so, um, he called, so he calls that the Villa Lobos crap you're always playing, yeah. And he says, well, we're in Rio now, man, so let's play that shit. Nice. And I'm like, oh. Oh, okay, I mean, I know it, but right. Joe, what, you know, and he's what like, I, I hear that, I hear that. And he just sits at the keyboard and creates an orchestration to the whole slow movement wow. of the villa. I played the cadenza. 
in front of the jazz audience, and, and then he played all the harmony and just nails it. It's That's like, cool. Oh, it's amazing. That's awesome. So he's a great yeah. musician, you know. The crowd, but anyway, yeah. Popular crowds know Villalobos in Brazil. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. They might not know that particular concerto, but they know, they know, you know. So we're um, we're playing all this lovely music, and I'm beginning to appreciate the uh, the folklorical traditions, and at the same time, there's a jam band tradition in the states that's happening. Mm. And so I started touring so with my own band. Mid-90s now? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. I started touring with my own band and was starting to fill up rooms, playing more sort of a world Indian-based funk kind of music. And then... The Raj Mahal. This was my group, the Farid Hawk group oh, at okay. that time. And then um, Kai Eckhart and, uh, from John McLaughlin's band and a few other musicians said, you know, we're going to start this, this jam band. You know, similar to what I was doing, but on a much higher level. Mm. And so we joined forces with them and sort of put my own project to the side mm -hmm. for about 11 years, focused on Garage Mahal. Okay. And you were mentioning earlier that at some point in those 11 years, you became the de facto manager? Or I wasn't really, uh, you know, just, you know, for the, to keep the record straight, I okay. wasn't the, the manager. Our, our official manager was, was a, a young lady. Um, and, but... We worked together a lot, so okay. I was sort of on the managerial tip, and that rotated some, but you know, by far away in, in the first you know five years of, of the band, after we fired our original manager, right? Um, we we ended up working together. Ugh, I mean, and this is hours. Just, and this is because you have you mentioned earlier, and I just want to bring it forward. You have a entrepreneurial sort of mind at, at heart, I think is something. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe a better way to say it and a little more honest way to say it is, is I'm a penny pincher. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, uh, and, and that had its advantages. You, you know, were tracking expenses. I was absolutely tracking expenses yeah. and, and, and Teresa, our, our official manager as well, and she's really good with, with Excel and all this stuff. So between the two of us, her being very practical and me being a, a little uh, attentive to, to some of the bottom line details, mm -hmm. uh, we were able to to successfully manage the band for quite some time. I was also a big picture guy, trying to get us record deals, mm -hmm. these kinds of things, and uh, yeah. not without its, its difficulties. You know, a lot of resentment in the band because I wasn't really the leader of the band. I was just running the details as much as I could. So and resentment comes up if you tell them they can't stay in a nice hotel room because you know that if they do, they'll be in the, in the red. We're going to be in the red. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can you give a sense for how the, um, the fees that you're able to command or ask for over those first, say, 10 years out of school changed? Um, you know, is it like... So you're with um, Paquita, and then you're then, then you've got your own band, and, and then you're joining a band with some of the guys from John McLaughlin's group, um, Garage Mahal. And you have a name for yourself. Are we talking about like you know in terms of income you know, for musicians? Is it like two x, three x what you originally made? I mean, how yeah. does it? I I think it's important to realize that there are different spheres of economy in the mm -hmm. music world, yeah. and that some of them don't really relate one to the other in a very linear fashion. Okay. So, um, you know, you might get an offer out of the blue from a performing arts center or a jazz festival or a world music festival 
that might be an order of magnitude greater than what you might ever command at a nightclub. Mm. And that's simply the, the physics of bodies and, and chairs and ticket prices and, and marketplace, you know. Um, and it's important to be realistic about that. Um, I think a lot, a lot of musicians kind of get an idea, you know, what's your fee? Mm. Well, my fee is whatever is reasonable in this particular situation where everybody makes money and feels good about it at the end of the day. You know, if I've taken money out of somebody's pocket in order to line my own, it's unlikely I'm going to play that gig again next year. Sure, yeah. Um, so how do you develop a sense for that? Like, Because I, I know, you know, many musicians don't feel good about making money. They, don't, they feel like, you know, this is art. I sh maybe even shouldn't be getting money for it. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think you share this concern, but... Well, actually, know, I, I, I would... I would yeah. You know, I'd actually say that I think sometimes the need to make money is really detrimental to the to the the potential to make meaningful and therefore lucrative art. Hmm. For example, if I tell somebody this gig pays fifty bucks, the immediate, particularly American attitude is I'm going to put $50 worth of effort into this gig. Mm. But if I tell someone this gig pays nothing, the only reason to do it is for the love of the music. And all of a sudden, well, if we're going to do it for nothing, then I'm going to bring all six of my guitars so that I can have all those cool sounds and I'm going to dress up in that clown suit that I wanted to wear, but no one would ever pay me to wear that clown suit on stage. And then we're going to bring the lights for the lighting show. And remember those three dancers, those cute girls? We're going to get them to come dance up front. <laughs> you're paying for nothing, but you're putting ten times the effort in. And remember that cool lick that, that we play? It's got to be exactly like this, otherwise the audience won't laugh or cry, or whatever it is that you're trying to elicit, yeah, yeah. and it won't work. So all of a sudden, because you're being paid nothing, there's all this attention to the details to make it fun. Mm. All of a sudden, you make it fun, and you're like, hey, wait a second. The place is packed. Maybe next time we make it fun, we can charge 50 bucks a head. Yeah. Instead of 10. Yeah. Or five. Or two and a half. You know, and, and, and so I found that, that in, in certain cases, if, you know, the penny-pinching, that was one of the downfalls of Garage Mahal, was that at the end of the day, most of the guys in the band were more concerned with their salary mm. than they were with contributing to the, the, the creative life of the band. And so we had opportunities come our way that were freebies, but they were huge exposure. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want Meaningful, to do it. Meaningful, so they wouldn't do it. You know? mm. uh, playing at the NAMM Fest for an entire week as a featured band, you know, that is a, it's an honor yeah. to be asked to do that, you know. And uh, no, can't afford it. Mm. You know? And for some people, it was literally they couldn't afford it, like they had mouths to feed at home. Yeah, yeah. Some folks says no, won't do it because I uh, just won't do it. Right. You know? It's like a philosophical thing for them. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so you know, all those things become complicated and very yeah. personal. And you know, I don't want to pass judgment on anybody, but we have different values, and those different values can uh, can undermine an organization. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so, the, um, how many discs did um, Garage Mahal put out? put out four studio records and five studio records and three live records and in total. What kind of uh, volume did the discs sell in? And was it mostly at shows or was it at that time like I would say um, or? we were at the, at the tail end of sort of the record industry um, functionality. Yeah. 
And so we sold, I don't really have numbers, okay. um, but we sold uh, a lot of our records through the, the industry uh, stores and online, okay. and then a lot live, you know. So thousands. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. easily. Thousands yeah, I would say each record is probably up in the 20 to 30, 200,000 sales, okay. depending on how old they are and how long they've been in yeah. circulation. And are all, are those discs all on Spotify now? Do you know? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. And I'm not engaged in that because I've kind of relinquished the reins of Garage Mahal to to uh, to Kai, who's running Garage Mahal. Okay. And we're actually kind of coming back to do some more gigs. Oh, cool. But I'm so wrapped up in other financial uh, concerns with my own groups, uh-huh. and I'm saying, hey, Kai, this is your baby. You run with it. Okay. And okay. so we have a handful of shows. Uh, and what's been interesting. Uh, has been that um, the, the band was on hiatus, hiatus for about six years, and I would say that it seems as if our fees have tripled <laughs> because of being on hiatus. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, you can do that farewell tour or something right, like that. Yeah. Right. Um, all right. So I'm actually almost through most of the questions that I had, and I totally want to be mindful of your time. Sure. Um, maybe, maybe last two questions. One is, uh, you know, if, if you would. You know, recommend a musician, or, or I'll make it easier. What's the la- what's in your playlist now that you're listening to that's mm-hmm. interesting for people to check out? And then for outro, what's a piece that you're particularly proud of these days that I can play as we move oh, out? Sure. Um, <clears throat> wow, good questions. Um, what's in my playlist right now? You know, I, I have to be embarrassingly honest and say I don't really listen to music very much <laughs> you're like Adam yeah we came down here total <laughs> silence the whole way yeah. all right well um, and, and not because I don't like to listen to music I don't really like the experience as much of the digital world mm-hmm. like I love listening to vinyl okay so you have vinyl at your I have a lot home? of vinyl I have a okay. great so what's on the turntable right, right now um, I would say um, uh, Pepe Romero plays Soar Nice. Okay. It's a very old, beautiful record I play on a on a Spruce Rodriguez, which is a fantastic sound. Um, I have some early bootlegs of Jim Hall that I'm listening to uh, that a friend gave to me. Those are bootlegs on vinyl. Uh, yeah. They're actually on a on reel to reel. Oh wow! Transferred to cassette and uh, and CD. Wow. Um, but they're originally reel to reel. I have a regulatory romantic guitar. Um, Played on his 1960-something flata. Oh, what a sound. Just the sound. That's what it is for me. You know, there's so many guitars that play well today. But, man, there's so few who get a sound that just is melt, melts you. Mm. And, and there are a few guitars who did. You know, to me, I think, you know, Williams in the early days, on those early recordings, that sound. It isn't coincidental for me that almost every recording that I like, I've researched and turned out to be a 1960s flata. <laughs> I just, I, I, for whatever reason, it just, it works for me. And it's Williams over Bream for you? It's... No, not at all. Oh. Not at all. In terms of guitarism, yeah. I think it's Williams over pretty much everybody. Okay. <laughs> um, I love, I adore Julian Bream. adore okay. his playing. I just absolutely, you know, I think he was a fantastic musician and a great arranger and a, a great visionary mm-hmm. um, and a very, very fine improviser. And he understood the subtleties of rhythm in the same way a comedian understands the subtleties of rhythm, his interpretations. Mm. Have humor and grace and wit. You know, was he as great a guitarist as 
and you know, 90% of the graduates from, you know, NEC or Juilliard today, probably not. Hmm. But who cares? I mean, that, right, that doesn't right. really, there's so many recordings where there's, I, I hear people playing, you know, standard repertoire, and the musical decisions are just so off, so uninformed and so uneducated. It's it's hard, kind of heartbreaking would, sometimes. Would it be unfair to make an analogy of uh, Bream to like today's technically gifted NEC graduates and uh, Jimmy Page to like the, the technically gifted <laughs> guitarist sure. who came after him? Sure, sure. I mean, sort of a sloppy but but beautiful yeah. player. Okay. No, and and I think you could, there's a lot to be said for understanding the history of the music. You know, Jimmy Page. Hendrix, Santana, these, these figures of the guitar world in the 60s, all had deep roots in the blues, mm. you know? And Julian Bream had deep roots in jazz, in European, you know, dance hall music, which is basically the foundation of the Beatles and Queen, yeah. and comes from mm. Dowland, and comes from Handel, Handel and all of the, uh, the history of, of European music in, in, a, in a capsule. Yeah. exists in European dance hall music. You know, so the, the history and being a, a lover of the history of music, obviously his work in early music is groundbreaking. And uh, it informs everything you do. And so for me, I, I feel like the fact that I'm as much a musician as a historian of music has, has really allowed me to, to have a bigger vision and, and see some of the trends that are out there and, and, and maybe understand them, not be as intimidated by some of the changes in the music industry because I can view it sometimes in a broader historical context. Cool, yeah. I love right. Bream. Love Bream. All right, good. <laughs> Power to Bream. All right, so what are we going out with? Um, oh, my gosh. Um, <clears throat> uh, my favorite of, of my own work? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, there's very little out there that I <laughs> can listen to of my own. Um, not because I don't like it in principle because I don't like it in execution. Right, right. Um, I think uh, Fareed Hockplay's classical guitar is something I feel good about. Okay. Some, any, any particular track? I think the Sonata Eroica is, is funny. It's, it's really funny. Okay. And I, I mean, and the best is the that's a funny piece of music and I play the hell out of it. It <laughs> makes me laugh every time I hear it. Good. Um, All right. Uh, if you listen to my album um, Out of Nowhere, uh, uh, there's a version of Giant Steps. Oh, you mentioned that earlier yesterday, I think. Giant and Steps. There's a yeah. version of uh, Grant Green's uh, Flood in Franklin Park that's that's excellent. Um, that I enjoy. All right. Yeah. I, I like Sonata Eroica. I like. I want to go with something funny. So we'll, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll stick with that. So, uh, Fareed, thank you very much for your time. <laughs> that's a short version. There it is. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank, thank you, Fareed. We are about to wrap things up here at the More Art Than Science podcast. But before we do, allow me to beseech you. If you like this podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Doing so helps others find the show, which in turn helps the artists that I interview find more fans, which in turn helps fill the world with more and better music. Do your bit!